What's happening, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter, on another great episode of the Matt Baxter Show with, yep, your host, me, Matt Baxter. So um, I have a fun guest here, James Reed, Celine, Michigan guy. I went to Celine, and unfortunately, he went to Michigan State, which that's okay. I didn't go to Ann Arbor. Uh, I went to Hope College, but I am a Michigan fan. Um, but that's all right. We forgive him. Uh, James Reed is an attorney, uh, and he is a, a business attorney apartment, but he, he specifically focuses on employment. And we've gotten to know each other quite a bit um, because obviously he sp- he plays a huge role in uh, employment law, um, protecting employees, protecting companies, and he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. So I would highly encourage him. I've met a lot of attorneys in my life, and there's a lot of just horrific people out there. And I'm not saying it's just because of attorneys, but there's a lot of people who are looking just to make a buck where James is actually genuinely looking to help people. He's impacted so many lives. Um, I love that him and I get sort of a relationship when it comes to Sherm and Sherm Talent. Uh, that's, you know, Senior Human Resource Management. We connected in New Orleans, which was an amazing trip. Um, and so, James, just thank you for the man that you are. Thank you for actually holding up law with integrity and not just trying to make a quick buck or sue somebody. You don't have a single ounce of that. You actually have impacting lives and making lives uh, right by the law. And I just have a huge amount of respect for you. So uh, thank you so much for the man that you are. And thank you for being a guest on this podcast. James, thanks for being a guest on the podcast. Matt, thanks for having me. So we met at uh, Steve's house. I think it's now is formerly his uh, his man cave or bat not bachelor pad, but his man cave. That's where we first met. I think in person we had interacted over email, but I think is that is that right? You ac- actually stole my phone, and I had to uh, get it back from you. <laughs> I was I was the guy who showed up. I think a little bit late. I think I had a cigar, maybe a drink, and then I left. And I left with quite literally two phones and realized I stole the attorney's phone, which is never a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. So uh, that was on the east side. Where, uh, you know, what, number one, where are you recording from now? And then follow-up question is uh, where, 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 where are you originally from? Yeah, so the same answer to both. I guess I quasi-consider it west side. I'm in Ann Arbor and grew up in Saline and find this to be home. I think we made the connection before, but I'm also a hornet myself. Which is why we're here together. <laughs> and that's what brought it all together. <laughs> I love it. So give me the give me the background, man. Give me the give me the story. So, you know, as a kid, my dad was an entrepreneur, had his own real estate company called Reed Real Estate. And my mom was a first grade teacher. And they basically thought by playing every sport in the world and signing up for every class and educating yourself, I would be a good citizen. And so I was that kid that played literally every single sport and volunteered for every additional uh, activity in school and ended up going to Michigan State. Then basically to get out of the Dawson's Creek world where I was so familiar with all the same friends, I wanted to have a new experience, even though our Hornet colors are maize and blue, I needed some green and white in my life to have that typical college experience, went to Wayne State Law School and became a lawyer. So the interesting dynamic on the the dad being an entrepreneur, mom being a um, mom being a teacher, was there any and this is obviously diving now deep into family background, but it's it seems like 
there's an interesting combination of entrepreneurs either marry somebody very similar to them or sometimes somebody's uh, a little bit more steady. Obviously, in that circumstance, a teaching role is typically a little bit more steady where an entrepreneur would have some ups and downs. How did that dynamic work and what did you kind of see between the two of them? Great question and observation. Complete opposites. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think my mom was the stable kind of steady nine to five job. My dad, you know, basically starting out with his own real estate venture was feast or famine and uh, basically needed my mom just to have health insurance because it's, you know, a lot harder to get when you're on your own. And but because of that dynamic, my dad raised me more than my mom because he could control his schedule. So he was at all of my sporting events and the one, you know, taking me to and from school. And he basically mentored me to be a lawyer because he managed properties in Celine. And one of the properties he managed was a law office. And he thought that would be a, a good career to have. Well, and it's fascinating. I mean, lawyers, I feel like have a perfect combination of certainly there's, you know, a steadiness to it. And uh, there's a lot of need for lawyers in every facets of life. But then at the same time, certainly can play a role as an entrepreneur and in, in jumping in different ventures. And obviously, uh, through some some mutual people, I know some of the folks that you help and support and represent as well, too. So obviously, you get to dabble for that. So by nature, would you say you sort of veer towards steadiness, brick by brick, let's build? Or would you say that you more veer towards sort of the, the high ebbs and flows of what a typical entre entrepreneur would be? In all honesty, I took the safe route by getting that stable job that was safe enough to have a good life in small increments. But in 2008, when the sky was falling and the real estate market collapsed, it essentially forced me to go the entrepreneurial route because it was feast or famine. And right. five of my colleagues got laid off for lack of work. And I realized I had to get my own clients to have that stability in life, even though I was relatively happy uh, with the stable salary pre-2008. And by forcing me that direction, I loved it and had thrills off it where I developed a substantial book of business and deeper client relationships and had my own security and essentially became pure entrepreneur. I love that. So when you first became a lawyer, what did that mean? To, well, when you first decided you wanted to become a lawyer, what did that mean to you? And then I guess, how does that change to remain the same today? So in law school, they solely teach you academics to pass a bar exam. They don't really teach you anything real world or life or anything about marketing relationships or business development, all unrelated. So I got a job solely based on academics. And my goal was to make it to the majors and try to earn a hundred grand a year base salary. And to me, that was like the promised land, making it to the majors. And, you know, your realistic bonus or raise thereafter is pretty much capped at $5,000 a year, unless somehow you're an entrepreneur and are able to bring in so many client relationships that you're not just feeding yourself, you're feeding a lot of other attorneys, paralegals, assistants, and so on. And I was fine doing the 100 grand a year majors lifestyle until I was forced to uh, venture out to being an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, it makes sense. 
Um, so give me a little background on the um, industry focus and or I, I guess what you started as and what you evolved to be from who you kind of choose to serve, the clientele, sort of the bread and butter of who, who you typically work with. Sure. So going back to my roots, I grew up playing chess regularly with my dad and I love projects where I can see the full chessboard and help the client, you know, make the next best move or, you know, win the, the game of chess. And so solving problems was a natural thrill to me. And at first, when you're a newbie attorney, you usually don't get the full fact pattern. You're kind of like, just do this small piece of the overall pie. So maybe you're marking up a survey only in a real estate deal, but have no idea what the real estate deal is. Or in a litigation matter, you might be reviewing one stack of documents, but have no idea how that ties into the overall litigation. And I did not enjoy the piecemeal work, even though I was learning skill sets along the way. What my passion was, was being able to talk directly to the clients and understanding what their goals are. And you basically learn it from athletics. If your goal in athletics is to win and that client's goal is to win, you know, some level of achievement, I then back up and say what steps are needed to achieve that goal. So like in sports, you know, what training and practice is needed to get a result in law, you know, what work do I have to put in and pieces have to come together to get that result. And I really loved playing chess with my clients and helping them solve problems. And in 2008, it was basically in my lap. I had no idea I wanted to be HR employment attorney at all. I thought I wanted to be a trial attorney because that's what you see on TV. And it turns out that um, dealing with HR and executives, you can actually solve their employee problems and every company has employee problems. And if you can develop a relationship where they can share the skeletons in the closet, it's way easier to solve those problems. Um, you know, it's fascinating. So, so two things I really want to double click on. I don't want to forget them. So if the first thing is, um, uh, you know, you, you see on TV, the trial attorneys, do you feel like that's most like what most people start off as? Because I feel like most of my friends who are either finishing law school in law school have been done with it for a few years, kind of that gamut. It seems like a lot of them wanted to be trial attorneys, kind of the typical, you know, law and order sort of thing, but then evolve into something else. Is that like, is that just like an MO of most attorneys starting out? I would say the answer is yes. There's yeah. how else could you possibly know one of these niche areas to specialize in without family guidance? So I would say it's a highly relevant skill, regardless of what you do, because if you wanted to be what I call the transactional side, you're even a better attorney if you know what blows up in the courtroom and what evidence you wish you had in your stack deck and trial ahead of time. It makes you a better transactional attorney as well. And about 80% of attorneys don't really find their own clients. They're fed work. So the main work that is fed to attorneys without clients is litigation because all clients may have litigation needs at some point in their life. And it's nice to have a resource at your firm to give the litigation work to when that relationship is probably there for a corporate employment or some other niche area. Yeah, no, it makes, makes all the sense in the world. Um, 
Now, this is a much broader topic, and obviously, choose to share what you can. But you made the you made the conversation or you made the statement something around the lines of like every company has problems or employment problems, and developing the relationship um, to the point where you know you can you can understand what those skeletons are because they are there and helping a client. So. Obviously, I own a business, and there's plenty of times that I haven't probably used um, our attorney, who I who I love as much as you know, probably as I should have through the years, or maybe too late. So, first, kind of a two part question. Number one, if you're a, a, a small business owner starting to grow your company, or you you know whatever scale you are, for the people that you work, what advice do you have of like how to use attorneys better than what people typically think about? And then also whatever you feel comfortable sharing, like what would be a sense of relief for a listener to hear of, oh, if that person has that too, I feel more comfortable. Or, oh man, I've got that I've got that issue in my business too. I didn't know somebody else did as well. Kind of a two-part, two-part question, but I'd love your answer to both. No, absolutely. And uh, so as far as the second part of the question, first as to, you know, what am I seeing? The more companies, the more problems, the bigger they are. You know the more issues that I'm seeing, and at at a high level, the biggest companies have inappropriate jokes and emails and banter go back and forth. Uh, as high as 57% of employees are having romantic relationships with a coworker, and 19% are having marital affairs currently. And the numbers are an all-time high in COVID. And if the companies are not willing to admit to me that, you know. An executive is sleeping with a subordinate or there's some issues and they say just terminate that employee they're a bad performer without any facts supporting it if i didn't know that i'm setting up the company for a disaster and that kind of answers the first question of how to use an attorney all law firms and attorneys would have a more profitable and lucrative matter if they came in at the lawsuit phase because lawsuits can last a year or two and be very expensive. So uh, if you were to call an attorney, as soon as you spot a potential issue or even get training on how to see the most common 10 mistakes employers make in common issues, that might only be a 30 minute phone call or a one hour training. And now you're prepared to solve all those problems when there's smoke and make 90% plus go away pre-litigation. So there's so many times where I'm in the middle of a lawsuit where if the client would have called me ahead of time, we never even would have made it to the lawsuit. It would have been like Ray Donovan and just kind of problem solved and gone away through some severance agreement or investigation, or we would have delayed termination until there was you know more evidence of bad performance. So now I'm going to ask you, you okay if I, I throw you out a tough question? Please. So let's say hypothetically you're talking to a, a, a startup founder who owns a 15 employee company, right? Right. And you hear a lot. So there's a lot of bad people who've done a lot of bad stuff out there. So I don't want to deny any of that. Occasionally you run into circumstances where somebody gets falsely accused of something or somebody, um, you know, uh, something comes out and maybe the facts weren't all there. How do you encourage executives, both male and female executives, how to prepare or start to prevent some of those things from happening and not protect their spotlight for the sake of it, but more protect their integrity? How, how do you sort of advise or what recommendation would you have for somebody like that? I would recommend, and I, I have that problem all the time. So first off, 
there is a decent percentage of the time where the person making the complaint is done in bad faith. And I have fired people based on an investigation that made intentionally bad faith allegations and hopes to get somebody fired so they could take their job. So uh, I don't believe every allegation necessarily is absolutely true. And I believe most of the time, I would say as high as 80% of the time, it's an employee that doesn't fully understand the law and isn't fully taking accountability for their performance. So they may say my boss is discriminating because he's a bully and rude and yells and is condescending and is an a-hole. But when I unpeel the onion, it's because that employee made a bunch of mistakes, was inappropriate with customers and dropped the ball and has all these performance issues. And it's really the employee not taking accountability for those issues or it's because the manager was afraid to have conflict with their team and didn't really let them know how bad they're doing and was, and was just avoiding that question outright. But what I would recommend is you got to start with the handbook. It all starts with the CEO vision of if you have any issue, any type of complaint, here's how you report it. And I think when you're a small company, I see too many times the legal excuse, I didn't report it because Matt is my boss and he was the one involved and I couldn't report it to my boss when he was the one allegedly involved. So what I say is if you're uncomfortable reporting internally for any reason, you can always email or call me as outside counsel. No one ever does. And that way it's nearly a slam dunk defense to that employee uh, not mitigating their damages and essentially extorting the company by, by not trying to raise the issue and give the company a chance to solve that problem. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate that. Um, let's uh, let's transition a little bit into um, into HR. Obviously, from you know just knowing you and knowing some of the impact that you've had, you've uh, stepped quite heavily into the HR space. So walk me through kind of that transition. Um, obviously, what you do professionally, but what 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 do you love about the space, and kind of what impact do you hope to have in it? Great. So. What I love about the space is it gives me a lot of opportunity to solve problems. And I think even at great companies, um, there are a lot of problems to be solved to make things better. Like I learned that I can see the ROI on avoiding those $100,000 lawsuits all the time and the mental health and productivity of those happier workers. And you want to encourage conflict so that you can make your services and products better. So you want those different points of view and that, you know, um, subordinates reporting their bosses or trying to interact with them in a way to make things better. So I love seeing the results of being able to help these companies through training policies and active interaction. And I kind of got lucky. I fell into it because of 08. I learned that the best way to have job security is in a bad market, you can right-size employees, you can lay people off. And in a good market, you can train, develop, and create executive employment agreements and you know phantom or incentive stock to keep employees happy and engaged. So you're busy in both a good and a bad economy. So it, it really is the best job security. But what I really love about HR is I think the fact patterns are the most interesting of all the the truth really is stranger than fiction that happens in the employment world. I um, obviously 
somewhat selfishly ask because that's the world we live and breathe, obviously, but with your your expertise and I know you're you're pretty involved with Sherm, right? Sherm Michigan? Yeah, I volunteer as the president and head director of Michigan Sherm, and I oversee the 17 HR chapters throughout Michigan, and I actively uh, attend conferences nationally. I'll be going to New Orleans in a couple of weeks for the national Sherm event and have meetings with all 50 state presidents to talk about the hot HR issues, which right now is finding people to hire and the right people. Uh, so I will see you in New Orleans because I will be there as well. Well, I'm throwing a private party for everybody, Michigan and all states Midwest that you should attend both. That would be uh, that'd be awesome. I, uh, I don't know if I told you the story, but I, um, I spoke at the Sherm Talent in Vegas in August. And this is my first time speaking at an HR event. I've done some public speaking in the past and um, I, I enjoy it. I get, I, get, I get a little nervous beforehand, but I really enjoy public speaking. And um, they give me literally a podium that's taller than I am. And you know that I'm not necessarily the largest human being, but like it's easily six inches to a foot taller. So naturally I kind of open up with something along the lines of like, I hope everybody can hear me because you can't see me crickets i mean absolutely <laughs> crickets that's the wrong joke for hr they're afraid uh, to laugh that a protected class comment well and the worst part about it too is i doubled down because i went for i'm too prideful when it comes to short jokes so i went for another one even worse crickets so i learned my lesson make it much more emotional storytelling uh the the short jokes was not the way to go so i i i got i got my my, my butt kicked in that one which is fun so most don't know but in michigan height is a protected class whether being too tall or too short is specifically considered a discrimination protected class um that is very good to know can you send me a little documentation on that by the way absolutely <laughs> i'd love that um so let's you know i'm gonna ask a very selfish question but let's assume i'm selling into hr HR by nature has this interesting spot in the organization because they're sort of glue, but up until probably the last few years, hasn't necessarily been respected. It's kind of been an offshoot or a support function, right? Sales right. more important, operations more important, um, revenue, whatever it may be. And now with the quote unquote war on talent, that makes me want to punch myself in the face for saying, but with the way we have that existence today, HR has definitely gotten a seat out of the table, at least in more progressive organizations. So, but there's the combination of they need to help find people via TA function. They need to hire people and operational efficiencies. They need to retain people. And then also there's this arm called compliance, which makes the role really complex. And so the ability for like a really, really talented HR person is wears such drastically different hats. In your experience, is that on par? Is that totally off par? Speak to that a little bit. That's 100% on the money. I always make a joke that they're a therapist, a priest, HR, a lawyer, and 10 other things all, all at once. And that's often true. And I think that now is the first time where a lot of executives are seeing the importance of all of these hats and how much they are the glue and the culture of the organization and this you know next generation of worker as they say even though i hate stereotyping groups of people they're more interested about purpose passion and you know having a good culture than they are about what pays a dollar more an hour it's funny the whole premise of the podcast is purpose passion calling so i think i'm living that 
Um, you are living uh, the stereotypical classification of someone your age. <laughs> Generalizations are true for a reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, obviously we try not to stigmatize groups, but you're, you're aware of the different, you know, uh, groups of people and ages and, you know, Gen Z, Y, X, New Millennial, all that stuff. And just give it a grain of salt, but understand everyone can be different and focus on and welcome the individual differences. But I think what's harder now is it's unfair to assume HR is an expert at every one of those buckets. And it used to be that things were simple enough or at least only one lawsuit every 20 years. So it was worth that risk. Now you can't take that risk anymore. So I think that more HR than ever are either getting additional resources, like the ability to seek outside help in certain areas and are not dependent to have the answers to all those hats by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, I dig it. Um, so if you were to mm, sit in a room with every executive on the planet and encourage and, and, and encourage them to better support HR, how would you, what would you have to say to them? Well, I have taken enough assessments to know the different personality traits that are typical in various professions. And HR is typically more relationship-based and a little more empathetic and feelings-based. And I think the problem is a lot of CEOs and CFOs and others in the, and COOs are more profit-based. And I think the HR communication language is rarely effective enough to show that immediate ROI. Just because I, you know, do this event or have this policy or this training doesn't mean I'm going to make an extra 10 grand next month. Actually, you could hurt the company 10 grand because they're literally spending 10 grand on that perk in a given month. So the ROI has been missing. And I think with all of the employees leaving and all the increase in lawsuits, uh, and the reduction in productivity, I think now for the first time, the CEOs are seeing the ROI without HR having to articulate it. Yeah, I'd, um, it, it, it's, it's been fascinating, obviously both at a lot of SHRM conferences and uh, California HR and a bunch of these different ones. It seems more and more like leadership outside of HR is starting to pay a lot more attention, which has been awesome um, because it's making it strong function of the business, not just a sporting role. Selfishly, it helps because obviously there's broader budgets and stuff like that too, but it's just cool to to see it become really a, a big portion of a lot of companies, which has been been awesome. So it's it's been fun to follow that trend. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit more about you. So in your in your you know current role, environment, ambition, what's sort of the next big thing for James? I am trying to solve problems for all size clients. And I've done a ton of space in the startup, the small to mid-size space. But I'm realizing that the bigger the company, uh, the bigger the problems. Just to give you an example, Tesla just had a lawsuit with a $130 million jury verdict for an employee that essentially called a coworker the N-word and had some bantering that HR thought was shop talk and inappropriate jokes, but didn't really discipline much further. That's $130 million liability. So I'm 
I feel like I want to help some of these larger companies, you know, get set up in a better way as well. But I'm really enjoying the ability to solve problems and what I call advice of counsel role is the favorite part of my job. I love that. I love that. My um, my favorite question in the whole world is what gets you out of bed in the morning? So obviously you're a wickedly smart, you know, talented guy who's taken on the world and here to help people and help companies and individuals. And again, like I said, I know some amazing folks that uh, you support. So obviously you have a lot of respect in who you are as a profession, but what's, what's kind of driving all this? You know, it's really the ability to know I'm making a difference and it's appreciated. If I feel like my clients call me and see the instant value. And I think a lot of companies, a lot of employees don't get paid enough to make these tough decisions. And if they can have a professional that focuses on hundreds of companies and how to make the best decisions and see issues that they can't see, I really get that value in adding value to these companies. And if I thought, if I was just an expense, like when you're litigating, sometimes even if you win, the clients are still mad that they had that expense. And that was a little bit hard, a hard pill to swallow, knowing that even if you win, you're not as loved. And why am I calling you? You're a litigator. Of course, I'm having a bad day. Or with me, sometimes they enjoy calling because I'm solving a problem. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good word. And obviously a good test of character too. Um, so for people that want to reach out to you, follow along with what you got going on, whether they're uh, a, a, a small shop startup or Elon Musk calling for a $160 million verdict. Um, how do they get a hold of you, follow along, and just uh, learn more about you? Yeah, I love giving out my cell phone number because I'm kind of quasi-younger generation where I, I appreciate text. I appreciate you know all forms of technology, especially I, I love the technology that you're working on. And so any way to get a hold of me, my cell phone is 734 649 1313. That's my favorite way to be contacted. But I'm also happy to be followed on any social media platforms. And my work email is James period read reid at dinsmore.com, D-I-N-S-M-R-E.com. And I always am one to make sure I respond to all emails and all texts. Um, so part of my routine is I never actually uh, start a week without having every email in my inbox cleared out. I love that. And that, I mean, number one, it's good to hear a 734 number. There's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're a proud group. And also, uh, I'm jealous of starting a, a, a week with an empty inbox, empty text inbox, the whole thing. So that's awesome. Um, James, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. It's been awesome. Always a pleasure and look forward to seeing you in New Orleans. Yeah, baby. Thanks. Thanks. You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye. <music>